ahead and take them out and turn to the book of Mark this morning. As we continue our way through the book of Mark, we're in chapter 2 this morning. The title of the message this morning is Jesus is God. This is a question that often comes up that may be proposed to you in many different ways, shapes, and forms. This is a question that is absolutely foundational for a believer. It's foundational for our salvation. It's not optional. It's not okay to think Jesus was a good teacher, a good prophet, a good man, a good whatever, because unless he is God, he will not be able to save us and to forgive us of our sins. And so there are constant attacks on Jesus and what we would call his deity, if he's God or not. Um, in, in the Muslim writings in the Quran, they give high praise to Jesus all the way up to the fact to the fact where they say you should obey all of his teachings, but they come short of acknowledging him as God that has come in the flesh. So one thing that often comes up is people will say, well, Jesus never said he was God. Is that true? So we're, this is what we're going to look at today. But I want to read for you some things that other people said in the Bible about God. Number one, uh, John, the apostle, he sure thought and believed Jesus was God. In his gospel, he starts off saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And if you're confused about that, later down in verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Thomas, doubting Thomas, in John twenty twenty-eight, he said to Jesus, My Lord, my God. The writer of the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 1, 8, said, but if the son, but of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever. The scepter of uprighteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Matthew, in his account, in his gospel, said, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means... God with us or among us. Peter, in 2 Peter 1.1, said about Jesus, God and Savior Jesus Christ. In Acts 20.28, it says that shepherds of the church are to care for the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Did you catch that? So that's a good one. They're, the shepherds are to care for the church of God, which he, Jesus, purchased with his own blood. And then in Titus 2.13, it says that we are to wait for the coming of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament prophets, did they say that the Messiah who would come, that he was God? There are innumerable amounts of prophecies and scriptures about the Messiah being God. I'll read one for you, a well-known one, Isaiah 9.6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So the Bible certainly teaches that Jesus is God. So what do we mean 
when we say God, that can be defined by different people in different ways. Many people think they're God. Many people think that you can become a God. Many people think that God is an impersonal force. But the Bible defines God as a pre-existent, eternal, uncreated creator who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, and is a personal being, not an impersonal force, and is one God in three persons, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. About this God, this God and God that the Bible talks about, the only one true God, the only God that exists, it is so obvious that the Bible doesn't set out to prove God's existence, but the Bible starts out saying, in the beginning, what? In the beginning, God. Because it's such an obvious fact, and what it takes for someone not to believe in God is to deny the very instinct that is in their heart that there is a God. In other words, for one to deny God, they have to actually suppress the truth. What does that mean? They actually have to actively push down, actively ignore what could not be more obvious that there is a God. And so Jesus went about in his ministry in various ways to demonstrate and prove that he in fact is that God that the Bible declares as the creator of all. And this God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. But see, in order to not perish and in order to have eternal life, this Savior has to be An eternal God, the eternal God, not a created God, not a God that became God, but a God that has always existed, a God that has never not existed, and a God who has not been created, but in fact is the creator of everything. And so, if that's true then we must submit ourselves under this mighty God and worship Him. And that is only fitting if God is God. If Jesus is God, it's only natural and fitting that we would worship this God in this way. And so now we're tracking through this account in the book of Mark, where Mark is giving us this account of Jesus' life, in particular, the things that he was doing. The things that he was doing that were proofs that he was this God that we just introduced this morning. And so we're going to start off looking at chapter 2, verse 1. With this idea of this unpacking or unfolding this truth about who Jesus really is. And so it starts off in verse 1. And again, he, Jesus, entered Capernaum after some days. So what's the context here? So Jesus has been moving around the Sea of Galilee. This is where his ministry is happening. And as his ministry is happening, his ministry is focused on 
preaching the word. And why is that? It's because he is communicating the truth. He is communicating who he is. He is communicating that he is in fact the Messiah. And those in whom he was communicating uh, with would know what he's talking about because they would know the scriptures. And so, as Jesus would go around, he would go from village to village, which these villages were all set up around the Sea of Galilee. And, and he would go from village to village. His, his home base was a town called Capernaum. This is where he is now. He, he stayed with Peter. And as he stayed with Peter, he would go out and he'd go to these towns. He'd go into their synagogue and he would preach. And as he would preach, as we saw in chapter 1, a lot of stuff happened. People were awakened. Because when Jesus taught, it was not like anything they experienced before. The evil spirits were awakened. We saw where Jesus just cast out a demonic man or a demonic possessed man that until Jesus came, everything was fine because it was dead religion, because there is no power there. And then Jesus began to speak and then it just brought about all this demonic warfare. And Jesus cast out the demon and then um, he healed a man with leprosy. That's what we saw last week. But see, the, the crowds had been, began to gather. And the man that he healed with leprosy was told not to tell anybody, but to go straight to the priests and go through the special ceremony so that the high priest would declare him clean, give him a certificate, and then he can go and circulate in the population, which he wasn't able to do until that point. But he didn't do that. The, the man with leprosy that was cured went out and spread the news about Jesus. And he spread the news about Jesus, that Jesus was healing people, that there was a man that will heal anybody. And, and the Bible says that he healed everybody. So that, that would be like we gave the illustration. If, if there was someone, say, at Town Hall in Flower Mountain, so Flower Mound's about 80,000 people. And the word went out, if you go there, there will be a man. Whatever your problem is, he will heal you of that. Well, every person in Flower Mound that had any ailment or any problem, or di- they would all be there. Imagine what the town hall would be like. And this is what was going on. And, and so these crowds kept growing and growing. And this is what is happening here in Mark chapter 2. So he was away from Capernaum. And part of that was because he had to minister in places in a low-key way where, where people didn't really know him or the word hadn't got out. And so now he's back in the place where he cast out the leper, where he healed Peter's mother-in-law where he cast out the demon-possessed man. And so now he's back, and it says, and it was heard that he was in the house. Jesus in the house. So, so now he's back in his hometown, where they were familiar with him. The word is getting out in the town The man who heals is back. The man who teaches with authority is back. No doubt those stories had circulated and and maybe they thought, we we missed the boat. He's gone now. Is is he going to come back? I, I still need healing. I still need help. Is he coming back? In verse 2, here we go again. Immediately... Many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, any more people. Most likely they were back in Peter's house. And it says, not even near the door. And notice what Jesus did here. Notice the emphasis. It said, 
And he preached the word to them. And no doubt that was, for many, that was a disappointment to them. Because they wanted to be healed. They wanted to be fixed. And Jesus was primarily there to preach the word. He was primarily there to bring forth the light, to bring forth the truth. And as he was doing that, the crowd was so thick in this, in this house that there wasn't any more room. Now, what is being set up here is the fact that there are now all these witnesses. There's all these witnesses there. You see, when Jesus ministered and what Jesus did was for the most part witnessed by many people. Why is that important? Well, in many false religions and cults today, it'll be a person that supposedly gets some kind of information somewhere isolated and then brings it back and says, God told me all these things. Joseph Smith in the 1800s found gold plates in the mountains and said this was another testament of Jesus Christ. Which right off the bat would tell you there's, that's false because the Bible says if anyone brings to you another gospel, let them be accursed. Same with Muhammad hearing and receiving revelations from God in a cave and then bringing them out to show people and, and say, God told me this. But see, the Bible challenges us to be good Bereans, so to speak. What that means is to really investigate that we are not to have a blind faith, but we are to have a faith that's based in reality. That's based in truth. That's based in something that should be able to be substantiated. And so here we see what Jesus is doing and what he had done through his miracles. It was witnessed by a lot of people. And in fact, Jesus' miracles were not challenged as to did he do them or not do them. If we fast forward all the way to Jesus' last week and the trials that he had, his trials were not trials about did he do these miracles or not, but these miracles were actually confirmed by the people who were coming against Jesus. In other words, the miracles that Jesus did were highly verified and substantiated. All the way up to his crucifixion. And that's important because all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 19.15, it says this. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. But by the mouth of two or three witnesses, a matter is established. And so ingrained in Old Testament law is the fact that you can't just take what someone says about somebody uh, in a way of my word versus their word or uh, hearsay. But when someone would make an accusation against somebody, it had to be highly substantiated and there were great penalties for a false witness. And these witnesses had to be multiple and eyewitnesses and those who were willing to give their life for their testimony against another person. So here we have Jesus and this unfolding of this teaching that he is actually God. And we see myriads upon myriads of witnesses testifying 
to the things that he said and the things that he did. And the things that he did were there to substantiate who he was. Does that make sense? So his miracles were not just random. His miracles were to substantiate his identity. And so now we see first off the bat, we have, so we have these witnesses. We have multiple witnesses. And then look what happens next in verse 3. So now we have the claim. Here's the claim. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. So now there's a group of people with someone who can't walk. And this someone who can't walk is being carried by four men. But that does not mean that there are just four men there. It just means there are four men carrying. Probably this was an entourage of people. And they come to him. And in verse 4 it says, And when they could not come near him because of the crowd... They uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. So you just put yourself in this scene and imagine this room just crowded with people. A subway in New York, door to door, wall to wall, shoulder to shoulder. And Jesus there teaching the word, preaching the word, and people from the outside wanting to come because they heard that that there's the Messiah, there's this healer that is here, and, and, and this paralytic, we can have him healed, but he can't get in. But I first want you to notice how important it is to have friends like this. How important it is to have friends that will bring you to Jesus. You may be here and a friend brought you here. Or maybe one time in your life, a, a friend brought you to Jesus. But we need friends like this that care enough about us and a good godly friend will always bring us to Jesus. We'll always put life and our problems in perspective in comparison to Jesus. But I also want you to notice that for many of us, there are those friends, loved ones, co-workers. They won't come. And you know, we can still bring them to Jesus. And it's our obligation and responsibility to do that by praying for them. We must be continually coming to the throne of God in time of need, bringing those like the paralytic, those who can't walk in the Lord, those who won't receive the Lord, those who don't want to hear about the Lord. We must continue to bring them to Jesus, to the throne of grace by prayer. Because Jesus is the answer. And so be a person that's constantly bringing people to Jesus, whether you can do that physically or whether you can just do that spiritually. Keep bringing them to Jesus. But also have friends like this. Have friends that don't give up on you. You see, it would have been easy just to say, you know what, it's too crowded, we'll come back another day. These friends would not be stopped. These friends were determined. And we can be friends like that. We could be friends that go the extra mile. We could be people that are willing to do whatever is necessary, especially even to be inconvenienced if it means we're bringing somebody to Jesus. And they were determined they couldn't get in. But think how resourceful they were. They didn't see that 
This was a lost opportunity. They just said, we're going to get to Jesus no matter what. And when I was thinking and praying and and meditating on this verse, it just reminded me that that in, in our life as believers, sometimes we give up too soon when maybe Jesus is making it a little difficult so our faith actually grows. And sometimes we pray and we say, Lord, my problem isn't fixed, and I prayed. Why didn't you fix it? And maybe God wants us to keep coming to Him. Maybe He wants to grow our faith. Maybe He wants to see, do we really believe He can fix us? Do we really believe He's the answer? And what will we do if we really believe that? We won't stop. But see, there are so many options presented to us by Satan that we say, well, it's not working right now. And then Satan brings an Uber of excuse and justification and another route. And what we start to do is we say, you know what? I believe in Jesus, but practically I'm going to figure this out on my own. I'm going to do my own thing. And when we say that, we really are lacking in our faith and believing in the power of God in our own life. When we do that, we think we have more power than God. When we do that, we think uh, a world philosophy or system has more power than God. And maybe God is just testing to see if you really believe he's the answer. And if you do, you will not stop coming to Jesus even if you have to have a breakthrough and break through in another way, but you won't stop. Now, the friends of this paralytic, so, so they got up on the roof. The, and that's maybe a little more difficult to comprehend um, with our houses. But in, in, in their houses, they had flat roofs. And they would often go up to the roofs to hang out. Um, that's where the breeze would be. Um, that was a very common thing to do. And so the stairwells would be outside and they would be able to go up on a stairwell, an outside stairwell. And as the crowd was inside hearing the preaching of Jesus, they started digging. We don't know how long. We don't know how big the hole was. But what we do know that this is this wasn't an easy thing. We do know that these roofs or these rooftops, they consisted of wood beams and thatch, which is like a mixture of like straw and reeds and palm branches, kind of like a bird's nest. A bird's get all these things to make a nest. So, so that would be kind of like the, the insulation, like we would think of it, and then compacted dirt. So they're, they're up there. And there was a barrier, that roof, between them and God. But they weren't going to let that barrier between them and God stop them. And so they kept pursuing. They kept going. Why? Because they believed Jesus was the answer. Now it's interesting. Watch what happens next in verse 5. It says, now... When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Now that would seem kind of strange to me. Because they were going because he couldn't walk. And Jesus didn't address that at all. But Jesus did something that was more profound and he saw the what was the deeper need the de- deeper need was that his sins would be forgiven and as as it's interesting as as this paralytic was lowered down there would inside that structure there would have been all kinds of debris coming down on those people all kinds of noise, all kinds of distractions to the teaching. 
But Jesus noticed something. He, he really clued in, in on something. And it says he saw their faith. So that's what Jesus noticed. Maybe the people in the crowd noticed an irritation. Noticed they couldn't hear. Noticed that someone was fidgeting. Noticed Jesus' message was being obscured. Noticed there was dirt falling on their head. But Jesus saw their faith. And that is amazing because what Jesus notices, he saw what they were doing and how they were willing to press forward and not let an inconvenience, an obstacle, an embarrassment stop them. So Jesus actually saw their faith. And we have to think about, is our faith viewable? Is our faith, what we believe, is it something that is actually a visual representation of what we say we really believe? Because faith without works is what? Dead. True faith, if we really believe what we say we believe... If we really believe Jesus is God, then don't you think that should affect how we live? Don't you think there should be a visual, that we should be a visual representation of what faith looks like? This is what's being said. It's one thing to to say you believe, but really what's most important is that what you believe is seen. Seen in your home, seen in your school, seen in your workplace, seen in your family gatherings. Is our faith seen? And notice, I love this because Jesus sees that. He sees when we walk by faith. Jesus himself is seeing that. And the Bible talks about in the last days how I will go to and fro all the earth looking to find faith. And that's what Jesus is looking for. And faith is really the the thing in which we live by. We live by faith and not by sight. And what does that mean? That means we live by what Jesus says and we believe it in the core of our being so much that we live it out regardless of where the chips may fall. Why? Because we believe in Jesus. And that settles it. So Jesus sees their faith, but then he, then he directs his comments to the paralytic man, and he says, your sins are Forgiven. So he's making a claim here. And he's using the difficulty of this paralytic man to really heal him. And I find that this is often what God does in many people's lives. He takes their brokenness, their pain, their emptiness... He takes the situation that they're going through in the world and he takes that and says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus uses our circumstances and difficulties and ailments and problems so that we can truly see what we really need. Because, yes, he can make this paralytic man walk. But Jesus wants him to walk in eternity forever. And that's what's really important. And so Jesus said something that was unexpected. Jesus didn't even address his ailment. And and maybe some of us here this morning, you may be here just because you want something to be fixed. 
And Jesus says, now that you're here, you need to know that what you want to be fixed is a very, very small thing in comparison to the fact I will forgive you of your sins. Talk about an eternal fix. So this story is developing where Jesus is showing that he's God through a bunch of witnesses that have now heard a claim. So a lot of witnesses around, and now they heard a claim. What is this claim? And and what Jesus said, could any of us say this to anybody? Could a human being say this to anybody? See, now he's taking it to a whole nother level, and that's point three. So Jesus is now proposing a test. He wants us to test if he's God. So look at verse 6. It says, And some of the scribes, these were the theologians who would bring meaning and understanding to their Old Testament laws and systematize them so that people can follow. So they're, they're lingering around. What's significant about this is that these were the same people or same groups that were there when Jesus was being tried. They were those who were instigating the trials of Jesus. And these testimonies that we we have earlier on in Jesus' life were testimonies against them later. They had all these opportunities to repent and turn to Jesus, and they did not do that all the way until Jesus was crucified. So they're uh, sitting around, they're sort of uh, checking things out, sort of blending in and scrutinizing the activities going on. And it says that they were reasoning in their hearts. So it's kind of like what you're doing now. You're thinking inside. I can't. I don't know what you're thinking unless you're yawning a lot or looking at your watch. But if you're just sitting there, I don't know what you're thinking. But Jesus does. (laughs) So it says they're reasoning in their hearts. So they're watching all this. and, And Jesus said something that you don't say. Son, your sins are forgiven. And so in verse 7, it says, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? And remember, they're thinking that. Because they knew no one can forgive sins except God. Right? So we may be able to fix some problems. We have a doctor in the house. He can fix some things that you have going on in your life uh, physically. But if you went to Dr. Sean and said, Dr. Sean, can you cleanse me of all my sins? He could say yes. But then we'd say blasphemy. Why? Because who can forgive sins? And this brings about a very important point in our understanding of why can't there be many roads to salvation? Why can't another religion be right? And just because you believe what you believe, does that mean that what somebody else believes is wrong if they don't believe what you believe in? Are all religions all valuable and all on the same plane, maybe you just call them a different name. And that that just absolutely cannot be true. Because the reason is what we're seeing here. There can't be a way to have our sins forgiven, which is the only way that we can have eternal life. There can't be a person, a human being, that can actually 
remove a person's sins. It takes God to do that. And that's why Jesus makes the statements and then proves the statements like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So the, the real issue that separates us from God, just like that roof was separating the paralytic from Jesus, it's our sin. Our sin is what keeps us from God, and our sin is what condemns us to hell if we reject God and his offer of salvation. That's why this is so serious. That's why there's so many attacks on Jesus is just another guy. Jesus is another guru. Jesus is a teacher. He's all of that, but he is the only way to heaven. You have to understand that. And if you don't believe it, it's fine. That's between you and God. But you have to know you can't say he's one of many ways. The Bible shuts that down completely. He either either is or isn't. And we have to face that and decide for ourselves what we believe. But don't try to make yourself feel better by saying, I believe in Jesus, but I believe in all these other things too. That's heavy, isn't it? And so these scribes are sitting there and Jesus is proving his deity in a very subtle way because he knows exactly what they're thinking. And their thinking is, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? In Leviticus 24.10, the penalty for blasphemy is death. And that's actually what these same groups brought charges against Jesus uh, to Pilate, Pontius Pilate. They said he is guilty of blasphemy, and they also brought these charges to the high priest. That's why they crucified him. What is blasphemy? Blasphemy is saying you're God when you're not. So here we see this, this movement towards uh, these beginning of his uh, ideas that lead to his crucifixion. So notice what it says next. If you're not clear, it's very clear. Who can forgive sins but God? What does it say after that? Alone. Alone. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So this right here just dismantles any other possibility of going to heaven without our sins being forgiven. So then the question is, well, how can our sins be forgiven? Well, if only God can forgive our sins, that means we can't do anything about our sins unless you think you're God. But, you know, when we say that we can be a good enough person to be accepted by God, in a way, we're making ourselves a God. Because you read the statement right here. And I want us all to be exposed to this statement and see it because... Because this is where it, what it all comes down to. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So this, that's the test. We have witnesses, we have the claim, and now we have the test. Who can forgive sins but God? And all of those who are around, they would know what is going on. They would understand because they were well versed in the Torah and the things uh, that the Torah would say. So they know, everybody knew that. So then in verse 8, it says, but immediately when Jesus perceives, so this shows that Jesus is omniscient, which is part of being God, is all-knowing. So when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do your hearts reason about these things, or why do you reason about these things in your heart? Imagine their astonishment. Like, I was just thinking that, and now Jesus is exposing that and bringing it out. And exactly what they were thinking. And then in verse 9, he says, Which is easier to say, that's the key word, to say to the parable, Sins are forgiven or to 
say, arise, take up your bed and walk. What do you guys think? That's easier to say. Anybody could say that, right? Because you can't prove it. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, what, what's easier to say? Does anybody can say your sins are forgiven. Not anybody can say to somebody who's paralyzed, stand up and walk. And so here's, this is the test. And so we go into the fourth, fourth point, verse 10. And here it is. But that you may know. So God wants us to know this is this is how God is making it so airtight, so clear, so undisputable. He's straight out saying everything that's going on here, I want you to know. And what he's saying that is also suggesting that no one is without excuse. There's not going to be excuse. Nobody's going to be able to say, I didn't know. Nobody's going to be able to say that. There's not going to be that excuse. And Jesus here is saying this particular thing. Here's what I want you to do. I understand what you're thinking. But I'm going to do something so that you know that I do have the power to forgive sins. And that I am who I say I am. So he says in verse 10 that you may know that the Son of Man... Which, by the way, is Jesus' favorite title for himself. Son of Man, which we can connect to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. I want to read this for you really quick. This is Daniel's vision. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven... He came to the Ancient of Days, that was God the Father, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. And so they would have known that. And so Jesus is saying, so, here's, so here, here's really what this all boils down to. It's that word power. This is what it comes down to. See, to be, to be God, you have to be omnipotent. That means all-powerful. That means there cannot be anything that's... Outside of your power that's too powerful for you. That you are the source of all power. So this is what Jesus is doing. As he's already demonstrated, he has power over sickness, over demons, over darkness, over death. And now he's saying through this miracle, I want you to know that I have power over sin. And he's saying... So that you may know that I have power on earth to forgive sin. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Now talk about putting your money where your mouth is. Like, do you see what separates Jesus from all these other people who say they're God? You can't say things like that publicly with multiple witnesses if you're not God. The end of Jesus' ministry would have occurred right there. And notice Jesus is specifically tagging this miracle as a physical miracle that all people can see that are there. He's doing that so that they know that it's not about the healing of this man, it's about a greater purpose that he has the ability to forgive sins. So the man in verse 12 immediately arose and he took up his bed and he went out in the presence of them all so that all were amazed and glorified God saying we never saw anything like this. Wow. 
So this all boils down now in that Jesus is God. Jesus is who he said he was and proved who he said he was. And now the implications of that in our life, if you're a believer, the implications of that are so profound and immense and powerful because what that means is that Jesus is God and he is all powerful, all knowing and all present. And that means he can do whatever he needs to do in your life and whatever you're struggling now, come to him. He is the answer. And the fact that he is God, it means that he can and did pay the penalty for our sins, that he can forgive us of our sins, that he can defeat darkness and death, that he can transform us, that he can write our names in the Lamb's book of life, and that he cannot ever, 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 ever fail or be defeated. Jesus is God. And I hope and pray he's God in your life and that you understand that as him being God in your life, you can have full confidence in him and how he is personally and individually working out your life for good. And he is faithful and he is faithful to complete what he started in your life. He's all you need. He's sufficient. He is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Alpha and the Omega. He is God. So let's worship Him. Let's pray. We're going to have communion here in a sec. Lord, I thank You this morning. I thank You for my brothers and sisters. I thank You for those listening listening online. And Lord... I just thank you for making things so clear. We are so prone to doubt, so prone to um, suppress the truth, so prone to wander, so prone to practically doubt you in our own lives by um, trusting in ourselves more than you and um, going after weaker things instead of just going after you. And so, Lord... I want to pray for our body here. I thank you for every single person here. I pray that you would bless them. I pray, Lord, now that um, they would just have the peace, have the peace of knowing that you are God. Just like that scripture that says, be still and know that I am God. When we know that you are God, we are still. Because you are sovereign And you are in control. And we thank you for that. What we're going to do now, I just want to encourage you. We just have a few minutes left. And I want to encourage you now just to spend time with the Lord. Nothing else matters. You have this this little window of opportunity. just want to encourage you to close your eyes. Talk to God. Think about God. Pray to God. We're going to have the ushers come around. They're going to pass out the communion elements. And I just want to encourage you to hold on to those. If you're not a Christian, uh, just encourage you not to take communion or to become a Christian right now. Receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But if you are a Christian, what we're going to do is we're going to take communion all together as a church and And what this means is the bread represents the body of Jesus and the cup represents the blood of Jesus. And when we take communion, we're basically just saying we receive all of what Jesus did, who he is and the work that he's done. So let's take a moment to reflect, to fellowship with the Lord. Hang on to your communion. We'll take it all together. So we hold these elements 
most significant part about these elements is what they represent. And I don't think it could be said better than what Jesus said in our text. Son, your sins are forgiven. This is what Jesus is saying to us today. When we receive the work of Jesus, which these elements represent, his body on the cross, his blood shed for us, he's saying, your sins are forgiven. Many of us carry around guilt and shame. And Jesus is saying to you, this morning he's saying your sins are forgiven they've been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ they've been tossed into an ocean and they remain there and will remain there forever as we hold these elements we are forgiven we are cleansed no more guilt no more shame Jesus has washed all of that away. And so this morning we rejoice that Jesus came into the world to become sin so that we can become the righteousness of God. And brothers and sisters, you're forgiven. Jesus forgives you. Jesus forgives me. And that's really the question of eternal life, isn't it? Not that do we have sin or don't we have sin, but are we forgiven? And there's only one way that we can be forgiven. And these elements represent that. It's the way of the cross. How much does Jesus love us? The cross says it all. He was willing to do whatever it took to bring us back together in a relationship with him. Brothers and sisters, you're forgiven. Jesus has forgiven us. Let's break open our fancy packets and our cardboard communion cracker, if you want to call it that. I think there are some early openers, weren't there? It's tempting. So let's take these out. We'll start with the bread. So this here represents the body of Jesus Christ. The body that he took on, the eternal God, took on human flesh so that he can be a sacrifice for our sins. So as we partake of this bread this morning, what we are saying is, We receive you and the work of you giving your body for us on the cross. Let's partake of the bread together. And as we hold this cup, this is a reminder of the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood that was not tainted with one iota of sin and so was shed for our great sin. That great exchange took place on the cross. Our sin for Jesus' righteousness. If you are in Christ this morning, His blood is sufficient to wash away your sin. His blood has made you and I blameless before a holy God. It is by His blood that we are clean. Isn't that gospel good? Let's partake of the cup together. Amen. Let's all stand We're going to sing one last song. Let's 
do it as unto the Lord with all of our heart. And if anybody needs prayer this morning about anything, as we sing this last song, just come forward. There'll be uh, people to pray for you up here. If you prayed to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, praise God. Just come forward and let uh, Rob and Val pray for you. But God bless you guys. Let's worship the Lord.